What a joy it is to be here tonight, to see this crowd, and I know that you have, without doubt, other places that you could have been, maybe even needed to be, but there's no place better than right here tonight. And we are honored to have so many visitors. You have blessed us with your presence. I'm so thankful for so many of you. I'm tempted to walk around the room. Larry Cole at Monroe's Church, those over at Allen's, and those at Willett, and those that either places that I have been uh, many times, and at Allen's for an example. Lord willing, we'll be at Willett not too long from now. Been in Montrose and gospel meetings and love and appreciate you, brethren, so very much. Now, I know I've just offended some of you that I didn't mention, and I didn't mean to do that, but at the same time, want you to know that you're our guest. <clears throat> she was shopping, and all of a sudden she thought, I'd love to have some ice cream. And she looked up and looked over there, and there was a Baskin Robbins. By the way, Brother Randy, you're going to have to find that remote. No, here it is. Found it right over here. There was a Baskin Robbins, and she looked over and thought, I'm going to go in there. And she went in and ordered a couple of scoops of butter pecan. And just as she was about to pay for her ice cream, she looked right beside of her, and there was her favorite movie star in person. Her knees kind of buckled. She thought, what am I going to do? I mean, he's right here beside me. She paid for her ice cream, went outside, realized she didn't have her ice cream. So she thought, oh, my, what am I, well, I've got to go back in and get it, she thought. And just as she went through the door to go back in, she ran into him. He said, are you looking for your ice cream? She said, yes. He said, it's in your purse with your change. She forgot why she had gone in there. We've got to make sure we don't forget why we're here tonight. The purpose is not to tell jokes. The purpose is not to reminisce. The purpose is to emphasize some truths that are found in this marvelous book, the roadmap that leads us to heaven. Tonight I want us to look at a subject that I believe is worthy of our discussion. And when we talk about that, it'd be good if this thing would move. We're going to call it stability in a world of chaos. The world that I knew when I was a teenager no longer exists. The world that my dad and my mom lived in and raised us five children. It doesn't exist anymore. In so many ways, things have changed. Oh, but there's many other reasons why it's so bad too, as we think in terms of all the storms of life that we go through. It was November 1995, even before many of the school shootings that have been so widely emphasized, in Giles County, Middle Tennessee, a young man of 17 years of age walked in with a rifle, raised it up and pulled the trigger. It was safety was on. He took it down, took the safety off, raised and hit a teacher in the head. She died in a matter of seconds. 
She aimed at a coat. He aimed at a coach. But a 14-year-old stood up at the wrong time and took the bullet instead, and she likewise died. I remember quite vividly in August of 2005, Nashville, Tennessee. I remember the school shooting in Newtown and how the news covered that. I recall in 2013, the marathon bombing in Boston. We can talk about various other things that have taken place, many tragedies, tornadoes that have hit, literally places that have been completely and utterly destroyed. Or we could talk about America and financially and all of the upheaval and the concerns that oftentimes exist. We could literally talk about America and its moral decay, that which we have stood for in times past, righteousness and godliness, a godly nation we've called ourselves. We can't do that anymore. We live in a world that has changed in so many ways. I realize that our physical homes can be destroyed. But what we are seeing is not our physical homes so much by floods and by tornadoes and hurricanes. Maybe in various ways we can look around and see it utterly coming apart, totally destroyed. Or maybe a burglar is coming in and, and completely upheaval in our lives but as we've already mentioned many of these things have not to do so much with the wind or the waves but has more to do with Satan in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8 we're told our adversary the devil walketh about seeking whom he may devour we're told in James, by James' writing, that we're to resist him and he'll flee from us. He didn't say that he would stay away all the time. When we consider literally the things that we know that exist all around us and how that oftentimes America has completely thwarted, disregarded what God has said in his holy word, marriage being redefined, same-sex marriages, all the abortions that have taken place since 1973. Fifty some odd million babies slaughtered legally. Why shouldn't we be discouraged? Why shouldn't we be wringing our hands and thinking, what are we going to face in the future? LaDonna and I have three living children, seven grandchildren. And the world that they're going to be raised in, no doubt, even more radically changing than even what I've experienced and you. When we consider all of these things, we might ask the question, what can I do? Is it the fact that Satan's winning this battle and I just don't know what I can do? I might as well just give up. Is that what we should do? Is it a matter in which I should realize that, all right, where is God in this matter? Am I just standing here all alone? I mean, is there nothing I can do to stop this upheaval and utter moral decay? 
With these thoughts in mind, I invite you to read with me a few very relevant scriptures. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 10, Paul would say, Therefore I take pleasure. Wait a minute, Paul, what are you saying? In infirmities? In reproaches? In necessities? In persecutions? In distresses? For Christ's sake, for whom I am weak, then am I strong? You mean to, you mean to say, in all of these troubles that you have faced, as a child of God, you take pleasure in that? But there's a difference, as you notice, when Paul said, for Christ's sake. He did not endure all of those things because he was an evildoer, because he was one that turned his back on God but rather it was persecution and affliction and distresses that had come upon him daily. He was in prison oftentimes, but even in prison, Philippians 4 and verse 4, Paul would say, rejoice in the Lord. And again I say rejoice. He would write to the brethren from a, a filthy, no doubt, horrible cell and tell them to count their blessings, your partakers, of the suffering of Christ. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5 and 6, well, I'll take the time to read all of it. Notice the red. When he said, I will never leave thee, I will not forsake thee, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear what man shall do unto me. The land in which we live, the laws that have been changed, the things that are being sanctioned, that are ungodly, that are contrary to what God wants us to be doing, but we've got to understand we still have God on our side. We've got to realize we, we can still be victorious. We'll get to some of those things in a moment. Notice with me also that Jesus closed his earthly life here on earth, his earthly sojourn. After giving what we call the Great Commission, he uttered these words, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the world. You see, every step that I might take in this life, I'm not alone. As a child of God, he's walking with me. In Numbers chapter 15 and verse 40, we read, we need to do his commandments and be holy unto his God. Titus would, Paul would say to Titus in chapter 2 that we are to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. There's some things that we've got to put off, not be a part of, not allowed to be a part of our life, but... Even in that world where there is ungodliness and worldly lust, folks, we've got to live soberly, righteously, and godly. In Matthew 5, verse 16, we're told, let our light shine before men. In Philippians chapter 2 and verse 16, we're told to be that light that shines in a world of darkness. There needs to be emanating from each of us what others can see around us, a difference. We're not like the world. We don't talk like the world. We don't dress like the world. We don't do evil things like the world. We are holy and righteous and godly. Somebody says, no, wait a minute, Paul. I can't be that all the time. I may try, but I, I just haven't been able to do that. As we discussed yesterday morning, I know we're going to make mistakes the Lord did too, 1 John 1, verse 7 through chapter 2 and verse 1. 
I write these things that you not sin, but when you sin, we have an advocate with the Father. The propitiation of our sins. But we must live in this world. We notice also in Romans chapter 12, the Apostle Paul in his writing to Roman Christians, would utter them, I beseech you, I'm pleading with you, I'm down on my knees figuratively begging you, brethren, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Someone says, I'm not sure I can live holy. Yes, we can. The Lord has never told us something to do that we can't do. Paul would refer to it in multiple of his writings and tell us that we can be holy, acceptable, and certainly righteous in the sight of God and not be conformed. In view of these things and concerns that we have in this world, for the next few minutes I'd like very much for us to focus on some positive things. I realize that it's easy for us to maybe literally get down in the dumps and discouraged. I mean, Satan's winning some of these skirmishes. He's not going to win the battle. But I'm living right now. I'm not there yet. And, and I'm, I'm kind of wringing my hands in woe and doom and despair. And all. So let's lift our heads. Let's acknowledge the fact that God is still in control. Let's acknowledge the fact that there are some suggestions that truly can help us be the people that God wants us to be. And I believe that part of that truly can be helpful for us tonight. Click it back there if you will. Number one, we need to be a faithful Christian. I'm not talking about just a going to church on Sunday morning type of Christian. I'm not talking about a Christian that maybe is a two hour a week Christian. I'm not talking about one that's even there on Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. A four-hour, a 142nd Christian. What God demands of each of us is that we live our lives completely and totally as He wants. That means that we are to be as newborn babes, studying and growing toward that of full age, as Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 12 indicates. We're to have the mind of Christ, as Philippians 2 we're to be lights in a world, as Matthew 5 has indicated. In other words, I must accept God is the ruler of my life. I've turned my life over to Him. I've got to have as my heart and my desire of being a child of God. Let's look at further. The thing is not working right now. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. It's not now. The Lord's will, when I'm a faithful Christian, is literally my number one priority. It's not making money. It's not being popular. It's not going up the ladder as far as the ladder of success academically or professionally. But rather, I have my mind, my heart, and my soul on serving God, pleasing Him, living for Him, being a Christian light to the world. 
letting the world see that indeed God still has some soldiers. God still has a family here. God still has those that are faithful here. And without a shadow of a doubt, according to what the Bible tells us, they will be here even at the time when the Lord returns. How many? I don't know. I have no way of knowing. But I do know that indeed he's going to have them here. You're going to have to go to the next slide now, and if you will put it all up there one time on slide two. Number two, we need to understand and the suggestion that we have centers around the idea of us recognizing that we're in a battle, we're in a war, and the battle is fierce. I cannot just meander along and just think, okay, I, I can just kind of take care of my own little doings and, and, and let everybody else alone, and I won't get into that fray, I won't get into that fight, I won't get into that battle. I'm just going to, no way can that be accomplished. And be faithful in God's sight. Oh, I'm not talking about putting up my fist. I'm not talking about necessarily carrying a gun on my waist. I'm not talking about literally getting into an argument and a fuss and a fight and every time. No, I'm talking about recognizing that it's a spiritual battle that I fight. And I must make sure that as a husband, as a father, and as a grandfather, as a friend to so many... Blessed indeed to have those that little children like we had up here yesterday morning that my life may not cross theirs very often, but I, I love little ones like that. And I, and I want us to make sure that we do what we can do to help them get to heaven. You see, I've got to have the mind of someone that protects and guards. I, I've got to have the recognition that wolves are everywhere. Well, I'm not talking about a physical wolf. I'm talking about one that is a, a servant of Satan. Paul would write the Corinthian brethren that there are those that appear as servants of righteousness, but they are actually ministers of the devil, servants of Satan. And they may say a lot of things that are good, but they're really not good. They're deceptive. I've got to recognize that as much as I try, everybody's not going to be saved. And you see, that should break our heart and bring tears to our eyes. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3 and 4, we're told that God would have all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. I do too. You do too, no doubt. But there are many that say, I don't care anything about that. I'm not going to listen to that. I'm not going to talk to you about that. I'm not going to even hear what you've got to say about that. They've turned a blind eye to the gospel of Christ, the saving good news, to a God that loves them, to a Savior that died for them, and they're not interested. They're going to be lost. Regardless of what all we can try to do. But I don't. And you don't. And my family doesn't. And, and as many friends and as many people that I can possibly and that you can possibly influence, I've got to realize, man, I have got to be 110% as best I can to help be a shining light, to help show the way, 
and to lead others toward heaven. Let's look at it number three, a suggestion. We need to lead our family spiritually. I need to show my grandchildren. I've got seven, ages 21, 20, 19, 18, 17, two 14s. I've got to show them the value and the importance, not of just an education, not of just a getting a good job, not of just driving a great car, not just whatever it may be, the world in carnality and the things that might come to our minds and the things that are really important. And, and there's nothing wrong with the things of the earth unless they replace my love and appreciation for God and submission to his will. And an education, if it takes me away from God, it's not good. I've got to help them to know they need to study this book. My dad was one of the meanest men in the world. He made me study and read and memorize scriptures. and Oh, how I love him for it now. I didn't then. I just didn't understand. I've, I've got to be the example before my children and my grandchildren that would help them to see the need for letting God talk to us every day by reading his word and talking to God in prayer every day. I've got to provide for them the greatest need, not just monetarily. I've got to spend time with them. I've got to lead them and talk with them and walk with them and, and anything that I can that will help them to get from this point in life to that point eternally. I could be the greatest dad. I could be the greatest financial success. I could give them brand new cars and brand new everything and anything that they want. But if I have failed to meet their spiritual needs, I, have, I am a miserable failure as a father or grandfather. I need to lead my family. Number four. I need to recognize that I need to be careful in my choices of recreational activities. Folks in our world past, there wasn't a lot to do for me. My wife and I dated for three years while in high school or early junior high and high school. You know what that meant? My dad took me to the skating rink. Her dad took her to the skating rink. We got to be together for about an hour and a half. Now we live in a mobile society. I mean, in an hour's time, we'd be a 50, 60, or more miles away. And mom and dad may not have a clue where Junior or where his, their daughter is going and who they're with and what they're doing. There are so many things on the movie screen there's so many videos and music lyrics. There's so many things even on the television screen in the home. There are computer games and, and things of that nature that will teach them and lead them into things that are so treacherously evil. I know that you'll probably say that I'm old-fashioned when I say that I wish the television had never been created. I think it's the greatest evil that has ever entered our homes. 
We would not let someone come physically into our homes and sleep with someone, be involved closely, sexually with someone that wasn't their husband or wife. We do on television. We would not let that same couple or two or three of the same ones come the next week and they'd be involved sexually in another couple or another man or another woman. We do on television. We would not let them come into our home. Surely we would not and use God's name in vain. And yet we do on television at times. You see, I've got to be willing to turn that knob. That's what my dad did when I was a teenager. I remember it vividly the first time he ever heard the word hell or damn. I forgot now which one it was, one of the two, and he turned it off, and I didn't think he's ever going to turn it back on five or six days before he did. But now we've just kind of dumbed ourselves and numbed ourselves to the idea of that's just on all of them, so I don't guess we have to, there's nothing that we can do. You see, Satan is programming us. Satan is numbing our brains. We're no longer seeking godliness and righteousness and purity and sanctity of lives as God demands that his children live. I've got to be sure and understand that I know this battle is fierce and that I've got to be willing to be strong, a spiritual leader, I've got to help my children to know alcohol, tobacco, drugs, anything along that idea. I just don't need to be. It's absolutely wrong. Now, I've already challenged us to a pretty hefty task, haven't I? Let's look at number five. I've got to be willing to counterbalance evil. By stepping up to the plate and taking on the responsibility of being what I want my children to be. What I want little boys and girls that are not mine biologically to be. I've got to make sure that I'm willing to change and do without if that's necessary. It may be that I've already seen this particular program, four or five different ones, and I'm interested in maybe seeing what happens, but all of a sudden what started out fairly decent and pretty good, and now they're integrating things that I can't condone. I've got to be willing to say I don't care about that anymore. I've got to set Jesus Christ on the pedestal of my heart and my mind and resolve that what he would do, what he would say, how he would act, what he would purge out, what he would turn his back on and walk away from and call evil, I've got to do the same thing. I've got to be the type of example that I want them to be and show them, not just tell them. Just telling them to do something is not going to get it. In Proverbs 22 and verse 6, it says, Train up a child in the way he should go. Bryce is our youngest one. He's now 14. He's almost tall as I am. But in years past, let's suppose that Bryce said, Papa, would you show me how to play baseball? Now, he's a whole lot better at it now than I'll ever even dream about. But let's say that he did that. Well, here's what I would probably do. Bryce, you just go out there and there's that ball and bat and glove. You just go out there and play baseball. <laughs> That's not what I would do. I'd say, Bryce, come here. 
you hold him back this way. I put my arms around him. And, and I'd have somebody out there maybe pitching the, the ball. And I said, all right, Barabbas, you get ready now. Here it comes. And you swing. And I'd have his hands in my hands. And we'd, I'd be training. But it's much more important about spiritual matters than baseball. I'm not talking about for show, but I'd be opening my Bible and showing him just a little bit about why this book is so important to me because I'm letting God talk to me. He's directing my life. I love him so. And what I might show Bryce would mean 10,000 times more than what I might just say, Bryce, you need to do this. Number six. When I say train, I'm talking about directing their steps. Literally, in the way of righteousness. I'm talking about pressing toward the mark of the prize of the high calling. I'm talking about looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. That Hebrews chapter 12 is followed uh, right after Hebrews 11, by faith Moses, Noah, and Abraham, and all of those great hall of faith. And then he said, we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and let us remove the, the weights that easily beset us, and let us run the race that is set before us as we look unto Jesus. In Philippians chapter 2, and 1 Peter chapter 2, we're told to have his mind, and we're told to follow his example. Number six, number seven. Last, we don't ever need to give up. It might be easy and tempting in our world. Politicians and their, their corruption, many of them, Battles within politics, and it seems like what's the use of even trying? But in Galatians 6 and verse 9, we're told by the Apostle Paul to a church that was going through some tough times. Let us not grow weary, he said, in well-doing, for in due season we shall receive the reward if we faint not. It might have been very easy from the human standpoint in the first century when maybe some of their own family members had already been killed because they faced the decision either you deny Christ or you die. Several years ago, I went to the Bible lands and Najati, our tour guide, took us in one of the amphitheaters and showed us back behind where the wild beasts were and the marble floors and said this is where Christians were oftentimes tied up, their hands behind them, or sometimes even animal skins or chunks of meat, flesh of an animal was placed on the body, tied to the body, and the beasts were turned loose if they were not willing to deny Christ. And thus understandably when Paul was saying, don't grow weary in well-doing, keep your eye on the goal in due season there's coming that time when all of this is going to be over with and we get to go home in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 22 Jesus would say endure to the end 
and you will be saved. In Revelation 2 and verse 10, we oftentimes just quote the latter part of that verse, Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. That's a great thought and great little segment, but read the first part. And don't be afraid of the things that are going to happen and going to occur and going to take place. But be thou faithful unto death. The world in which you live is not going to like you. Jesus said they didn't like me. They're not going to like you. But even the prophets before all of us, many of them died. God has never promised us an easy time here on earth. But oh, what he has promised in that which is to come. Next slide. Notice in particular these thoughts. Go ahead. We are either building on the rock or on the sand. We're either obeying that which we find in Scripture right here, or we're rejecting it. We are either on God's side or on Satan's side. We can't do the middle. Matthew 6, 24 tells us no man can serve two masters. Either you love the one, despise the other, you're going to cleave to one. In other words, you can't straddle the fence. In the Old Testament, we find that question being asked, why limp you between two sides? You're trying to play both sides of the fence. You can't do that. You can't be a Christian on Sunday and live for the devil the rest of the week. We are either righteously living or we're sinful in God's sight. And Matthew 25 and verse 46 tells us the two destinies. And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into life eternal. If you back up to verse 31 in chapter 25, you're going to hear Jesus talk about, I was in prison, you didn't come to see me. I was naked, you didn't give me clothes. I was thirsty, you didn't give me drink, or I was hungry. Lord! You can almost imagine how the disciples responded. Lord, when did we see you like that? To which he said, Inasmuch as you did it not unto the least of these, you did it not unto me. Those that were faithful, everlasting life. Those that were unfaithful, Non-Christians, erring children of God, everlasting punishment. What's that going to be like? Oh, most of the times we prefer not to even think about it. And I read the terms that are found in the scripture concerning weeping, and gnashing of teeth, a lake of fire and brimstone, outer darkness. I don't like to be in the dark. I don't like fire. My wife and I had a home to burn in 1977, living in Jackson, Missouri. We were at the church building that Saturday morning 
a teenage boy ran in the door, burst in the door, and hollered, Brother Sane, Brother Sane, your house is on fire. We live three blocks away. We got there. The police and the fire was already there, knocked out windows and hoses of water going in. And... But I haven't mentioned yet that I had three children that was in that house. I thought. Our 16-year-old foster child was there with our two younger I thought they were still in there. It took a police officer and two firemen to keep me from going in that door. They pinned me down to the ground. And about that time, my neighbor came up and said, the children are out here in the car. I looked at that fire. And I've often thought about since that time, what if we had been in it? What if the children had been in it? But in actuality, it would have only been our physical bodies to have perished, not our eternal soul. The lesson is yours. Get the songbook, or you'll turn to the screen. We'll have the screen in front of us. I want to ask you simply right now as I close this lesson to think. If you died tonight, where would you be? His name was Joel. A fine teenage boy. There was a youth day that day, land where he went to church. He missed deer season opening because he had to be there. He made that choice. Later on, after the youth day was over, he went to his dad and he said, Dad, would it be all right if I get up in the morning, Sunday morning, about 4 o'clock and go hunting for a couple of three hours before coming to church. I'll be back. I've got scripture reading and worship this morning. And Dad knew the kind of man, the young boy that he was, and said, sure. He was always safe with a gun. Don't know what happened. But as he was trying, climbing up in that tree stand, a 30 6 went off. phone call came to the church building. I was already in the office. And I had to break the news to part of his family. We went to the visitation the next night. Three blocks long out the front door of the funeral. An outstanding, awesome young man who died at such an early age. the epitaphs and the accolades and all the comments that flowed that Sunday and Monday and Tuesday at the service praised a young 18-year-old who was a Christian and when he 
started that life of serving Christ, he never looked back. His priorities was always right. He was looking forward to going to heaven, often talking to his friends about living for Christ. parents know that? No, no way. Never did they have a clue that that day, on that youth day, and then when he would get up early the next morning, that'd be the last time they'd see him alive. But folks, the whole fact, the most important facts of all, is the fact that it won't be the last time they'll see him. Oh, we'll be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. First Corinthians 15, First Thessalonians 4 will not be in this physical, fleshly body that we have, but will be together forever. Those that are righteous, those that are holy, those that are pleasing God, that have engaged in the battle and won the fight. As Paul closed his life, he said, I fought a good fight, finished the course, kept the faith. Henceforth, listen, henceforth is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me in that day, but not to me only, but unto all them that love is appearing. something that would keep you from entering heaven's gates. Make that right tonight. Change that. That heaven can be your home. You're not coming to me. I'm just a servant. You're coming to Jesus. I might shake your hand, but you're giving the Lord your heart. Won't you come? As we stand and sing. <laughs>